Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good afternoon, Phoenix. Welcome to Logitimate, uh, your favorite consumer rights podcast, talking about all of the fun issues that we deal with every day. And I'm your co-host, Rochelle Poulton. And I'm Mike Poulton. And today's topic is The Rackets, part Part two. two. (laughs) (laughs) On our previous show about The Rackets, we talked about a number of issues affecting consumers that are just not quite fair. Some of them are really bad. These are the scams, the bad business practices, the catches, uh, all of the things that prey upon consumers financially and business-wise in the United States these days. And here we are for part two. We're going to talk about more problems that everybody's got to deal with as a result of unscrupulous business practices. What do we have on the agenda today? We're going to cover some ground. We're going to talk timeshares, private student loans, title, and high interest loans, MLMs, and of course, the door-to-door scams that are going around these days. So timeshares. Timeshares. I deal with a lot of timeshares. If you own a timeshare and you've ever thought about getting rid of it, you have probably seen tons of services to help you sell your timeshare. The problem with selling your timeshare is nobody wants to buy it. It turns uh, out it's really <laughs> easy to buy a timeshare. If you want a timeshare, you will have no trouble getting your hands on the timeshare. Let me tell you. Go to a free presentation. <laughs> they will sell you one. Or you can go to timeshares by owner and you can buy one. You can buy timeshares online that are used, never wanted, and will never be used again. There are tons of timeshares. There's different types of timeshares. Mostly all companies have converted to the point system where you have a couple of points that you get that you purchase for money and that you use those in exchange for time at a timeshare. So let's talk about that a little more. So the traditional timeshare way back in the day when they first started, the idea was they were that great. yeah, when they were great, the idea was that a resort property somewhere would have a bunch of uh, resort condos or something like that, guest yep. houses, whatever it is that are privately owned. They're not hotel rooms. They're condos or property that people can buy. And then you can go there and use it whenever you want. It's a vacation property. Well, they determined that an awful lot of people don't use those enough to justify owning the whole thing yourself, having your own private vacation condo. That's expensive to do. You can only do that if you've got enough money that it it just doesn't matter to you to own something that you only mm-hmm. use a week or two a year. Yeah. So somebody had the bright idea to split up that ownership so that a whole bunch of people can share one resort condo. And that's great as long as everybody's happy with the arrangement uh, and as long as you can get out of it if you don't want it anymore. The problem is most people find out that when they're sharing ownership of a resort condo with a bunch of other people they don't know. They all want to go on vacation at the same time. Yeah. Everybody's got the same vacation dates. (laughs) (laughs) And... That really wasn't the problem because they came up with trading your timeshare time for a timeshare at a different place. So they created the timeshare exchange. So you've got one timeshare, somebody else has a different one, you guys want to swap properties. No problem. Super great. Well, then where it really started to get complicated was the introduction of monthly assessments and HOAs and annual maintenance costs for your timeshare. So a timeshare used to be something around $20,000 and it was a lifetime investment. You could use the property whenever, but now it's a reoccurring annual expense, sometimes $5,000. 
even higher if you own, if you don't own it outright and you've mortgaged the time that you need. You can mortgage your timeshare. It's insane. It's kind of a mortgage, but it's really more of a personal note because they don't want to foreclose. Uh, Because (laughs) nobody wants your timeshare. And they don't want it back. (laughs) So um, one of the fun things that uh, I deal with as a consumer rights attorney is helping people get rid of timeshares. And so there is a few scams out there related to giving up your timeshare. The first one is hiring a company for thousands of dollars. We're talking five to 10, $15,000 to sell your timeshare. And they require that you are current on all assessments. So you've got to pay, uh, be current on your mortgage payment on your timeshare. You have to be current on all of the HOA dues, all of the annual assessments and everything. And if you couldn't afford to keep the timeshare, then you're definitely not in a position to pay that plus tens of thousands of dollars, which ends up being extremely problematic. So what you really need to do is skip that option. Don't pay tens of thousands of dollars to not have your timeshare sold. The one thing that I see some law firms doing in town is they will transfer your timeshare to a third party. And these are called straw man transfers. So what they do is they transfer your timeshare to somebody else. And then that somebody else never makes payment. And this is not actually a valid transfer. That's not how deeds work. That's not how mortgages work. That's not how loans work. Just because you're not on title doesn't mean that you don't still owe the money. So in some cases, the person that it's been transferred to is actually dead. And that is definitely not a valid transfer. And you that's a really logistically difficult problem to fix. It's important <laughs> to note, though, the transfer may be valid in the sense that you don't own the timeshare anymore. So it's not yours anymore, but you still owe all the money on it. Yes. So you don't get the benefit of it once you've done this kind of a shady deal. You're not going to be able to keep using your timeshare, but you are still going to be liable for the money. And this gets into a complicated real estate issue. So you've got two types of things when you've got a mortgage. You own the property itself, and then there's the underlying liability for payments on the property. And those are two separate things. So usually you have a note and you've got title. So if you don't have title, but you still have the note, well, you still owe the money. Like there is no getting out of owing the money. So people do this frequently in regular real estate transactions, especially in divorce, where they just sign over the property to their ex. But then when the ex doesn't make payments, it shows up on their credit report and they're wondering why they're not off the mortgage. Well, there were two separate issues. You have to like resolve them both. Same thing in a timeshare. You have to resolve the note and the title and that requires the timeshare company to cooperate bonus, timeshare companies are uh, have no idea how to fix this problem. They are not set up to actually help you uh, get rid of your timeshare. <laughs> I think that you're being pretty generous by saying that they don't actually know how to fix it. They, don't. Uh, they intentionally are not fixing it because they don't want to. <laughs> it's not in their best interest to help you get rid of your timeshare. They yes. have no incentive whatsoever to facilitate anybody ever unloading their timeshares. Yes. It's just administrative burden for the timeshare company to deal with a change of ownership. But more importantly, uh, it potentially devalues their timeshare. What matters most to them is that they sell these timeshares to somebody who's going to be on the hook for the payments mm-hmm. and that they sell them for the most money they can get. Yep. So facilitating a secondary market to trade their timeshares at a lower value 
reduces the availability of those timeshares new directly from the timeshare company. <laughs> they don't want the market flooded with a bunch of easily transferred secondary timeshares that are worth way less. They want to keep building and selling timeshares at new resorts. And they want to keep the same people paying those assessments on them year after year after year, whether they go use them or not. Fair. That's the reason we're talking about timeshares today on the rackets. Yes. They're a huge racket. They keep going strong. And if you don't like it, talk to your legislature about the options for dealing with timeshares, like specifically how to give them up. Uh, this is only a problem that can be fixed through uh, law. This isn't yes. a issue that you can fix with business. This isn't an issue that you can deal with on a widespread basis without some kind of legislative action, unfortunately. I just pit bull it. Like, I simply make them take it back eventually. By so. <laughs> being an annoying enough and causing enough of a problem that it's worth it to them to facilitate that. Pretty much. <laughs> um, I'm very nice, but I'm not nice to the other side. <laughs> I'm a little aggressive. <laughs> but um, sometimes that's just what you have to do to get the result that needs to happen. But if you do truly have a financial hardship um, or a recent loss in your family or something that truly justifies um, being released, there are applications that you can complete through the timeshare company. I would definitely recommend consulting and engaging counsel to assist you through that process. It's multi-step. There's lots of paperwork, additional forms, and they will pretty much do everything they can to deny your application. So it's worth it to just consult with an attorney, make sure you're filling out the right paperwork and not getting scammed. So if you have a timeshare you don't want and have had a recent change in life circumstances that's unfortunate, you should take advantage of your tragedy to unload that timeshare as soon as possible. Because if you've got a good excuse now, you may not have one later. Ditch your timeshare while you still can. They're probably not going to take it back now. I don't think a pandemic counts. Yeah, that's probably true. Unfortunately. Yeah. So moving right along into private student loans. Private Yay, student loans. Private student loans. So, you know, Rochelle, I think this this particular issue is a tricky one right now mm -hmm. because historically, private loans have been, I think, easier for you to deal with in your practice than mm -hmm. federal loans yep. because federal student loans uh, are treated pretty much unlike any other kind of debt. There's no other kind of debt that is harder to get rid of than a federally backed student loan. It follows you till it you die. follows you till you die. And then even after, you got to <laughs> fill out more paperwork. Yep. Uh, which is hard to do when you're dead. Yeah. So it, it's just really tough to deal with federally backed student loans. But right now, federally backed student loans are probably more favorable than private. Yes. So effective March 28th, under the CARES Act, all federal student loan payments have been placed in administrative forbearance through September 30th of 2020. That is a very long and gracious forbearance period because the government recognized that people probably were not going to be able to make their student loan payments. The average student loan payment right now in the U.S. is 380 bucks a person. So if you have two people with student loans, that's like half a mortgage payment. So it just wasn't going to be economically feasible for people to continue to do it. And because they were flooded probably with so many people saying, I'm not going to be able to pay this. They just approved a nationwide forbearance yeah. on payments. Now, does that, is this also a moratorium on accrual of interest? Nope. Okay. Of course, interest still accrues. Come on. <laughs> so if you are not in financial distress and you are able to make your payments, 
probably worth looking at whether you should forbear or whether you should just keep paying. Exactly. It is a case-by-case analysis. I've had this conversation with a few people in the last week about their student loans. And if you can afford to pay, it may be worth it to keep paying. Obviously, if you can't, don't take advantage of the freebie. But it's all based on your servicer. So FedLoan Today just came out with notices telling people like, hey, everything's in forbearance. But if you're in an automatic payment, you actually have to like stop the automatic payment. Uh, that, they don't stop that for you. They'll just keep taking your money. Which might be just fine. Which might be fine. But for those of you in financial stress, that could be one way to save some money every month. Yep. But with private student loans, this is where it really gets complicated. Uh, they do not have the same moratorium. <laughs> they are not actually required to give you any type of break right now because they are private loans. They are not federal loans. So a lot of the big offenders out there that do private um, servicing are not providing any type of relief. So the only thing you can really do in those cases is call and ask them for a forbearance. And most of them will give it to you for this month. And then you have to call next month. And that's assuming you can get through. Everybody's hold times are extremely excessive. A lot of the loan servicers are currently switching to a remote location. And a lot of their departments are closed and no one is available or they have very short windows of availability. Or you just sit on hold for about three hours and then get disconnected because the person who picked up the phone didn't actually answer your call. So it gets pretty frustrating. It's a thing that my office has been experiencing for about the last two weeks. So if you are having problems with your private student loans, um, you just unfortunately have to get in line and see what you can do with your particular servicer call and see what the options are. But generally, private student loans are already terrible to deal with. So when you're in default on a private loan or you can't afford your payment, you have way less options than you do dealing with federal. So if you have a private student loan and you can't afford your payment, most servicers are not very willing to work with you on reducing your monthly payment or working out an alternative payment strategy. And what I hate most about private student loans is they usually come with a variable interest rate. A lot of people don't realize that when they take out these loans for schools that maybe maxed out their federal student loan requirement, or maybe they push them towards getting a private loan instead of a federal loan for whatever reason. But some of those private student loan rates start at 9%. I've seen some at 18% that have a cap at 30. So you're looking at literally your annual, your total student loan balance increasing by 18% every year with no hope of ever paying that sucker off. So the real problem with private student loans is people are not getting the same kind of disclosure that they get with a federal student loan, and they're not getting a fixed rate the way they get with a federal student loan. So for people with uh, variable rate private loans, Mm -hmm. is that really going to be a problem for them right now? Yeah. The variable rate? And it's because just because rates have dropped so low doesn't mean that they benefit from the adjustment. So a lot of the contracts build in the interest where the interest rate, once it hits a certain level, it will never go below that level. So you may not have an interest rate increase for the next six months, but you're still stuck at 18%. Interesting. Yeah, they're pretty unfavorable. One option that people may have, if you're in a financial position where you're able to pay on your loan and you can handle a little bit of additional expense, but you want to get over this variable rate risk in the future, 
you can talk to a financial advisor about purchasing a swap contract to swap your variable rate loan for a fixed rate loan. This is something that's done routinely in commercial lending and in more advanced personal lending, but it's an option that's available to anybody if you can get in touch with an independent financial advisor, uh, somebody who deals with moderately complex personal investments, and tell them, look, I've got this variable rate loan. I don't like the risk on it. What can I do? Can you get me into a swap contract to fix this rate? And what you end up doing is purchasing a financial instrument that's a contract with somebody else. Uh, You won't know who. It's on an open market. But you're essentially switching your variable rate loan for a fixed rate loan term. And you may end up paying a little bit of extra money to do that, or you may actually receive money on the net for doing that, depending on what the projections are for future interest rate changes. But that's an option you've got to mitigate that risk. And it's usually not all that expensive to do. Great tip. A lot of people ask me, you know, can I just refinance? And yes, you can. But usually the refinance on uh, student loans in that market, the rate's just as high. You know, you're looking Mm -hmm. at 8%, 12%. Sometimes it is a variable rate and not a fixed rate. And sometimes the payment terms is only 10 years. So you end up paying a lot more monthly, even though you do have an actual shot at paying it off. Most of the private loan issues that I deal with and that I see are for people who defaulted years ago. So if you went to a maybe a flight school or a uh, University of Phoenix or another online educator like that, and you don't have private and you don't have federal loans, but they are private, and you can tell because it'll say the name of the school instead of a, uh, like a loan servicer like FedLoan or Nelnet or something like that then those are probably private. And how they get people is those are just regular contracts. They are not like federal loans that follow you until you die. These things actually are subject to a statute of limitations. And there are law firms that sue people for defaulted private student loan debt. I think National Collegiate Trust is the biggest uh, loan private loan servicer out there. You know, if you've got loans with like AES... They're probably the biggest in Arizona for servicing of uh, National Collegiate Trust loans. You have options. Like if you're in default and you're looking at a lawsuit, you should settle. Uh, Get into a long-term payment plan instead of letting that haunt you for the rest of your life. Usually they're pretty good to work with on the law firm side. But why it's on the rackets is because most companies won't work with you at all if you're not in default. They provide you with no options. If you miss a payment, um, they will continue to report on your credit report that you're late, even if you can resume making payments because you've defaulted on the contract and you're just simply late every month, month after month, ruining your credit. Catch up completely and also convince them to fix the reporting, which is not likely to work out very well. They will never do that. And um, they don't have to reinstate your loan. Once you're in default, you're in default. You're just making voluntary payments on it. Uh, forever. And some federal loans are like that too. So you have to really be careful before you miss payments, knowing really what your options are for resolving it. Uh, Consulting with a bankruptcy attorney is a great idea for those private loans. Sometimes they are simply dischargeable in bankruptcy. Some types of private loans are dischargeable in bankruptcy. Some type of them are more difficult and probably not going to be favorable uh, in an adversary proceeding in bankruptcy. But it's always worth a consultation to figure out what your options are. If you have a private student loan or a judgment, they get a lot of default judgments. It's pretty terrifying. People realize, wait, they got sued for a student loan? Yes, that happens. It happens quite often. 
Um, and I don't think people realize that at all. So normally, I think we would say that the federal loans are the racket, but right now, it's kind of private. private loans that are the racket. That's an interesting little switch that we're dealing with here as a result of the coronavirus relief efforts. Uh, for once, the government is doing us more of a favor than, than <laughs> private, private institutions. Shocker. Yeah. I know. I'll take it. It's a yep. win. It's a win for consumers all day. Unless you have private loans, and I'm really sorry. <laughs> Dealing with uh, other high interest loans, I think the biggest offender is the title loan. So, little history on this. Yes. In Arizona, we used to have payday loans. Yep, we and, hated them. Yeah. So, the idea was it's basically legalized loan sharking people who don't have cash and are desperate to get some cash ahead of their paycheck. Uh, these lending services were legalized here that would allow you to essentially use your future employment as collateral for a very high interest personal loan. 300%. Um, yeah, yeah, 300% APR or so. The highest typical. I saw was 390. Yep. So the idea was that if you prove that you have a job, you show up with pay stubs at the uh, armor plated window at the, the payday loan place and you show them your pay stub and they give you what, a couple weeks worth of money? Well, it depends. Pay stub. Yeah. Well, back in the day, oh, I don't know. Open, I have no idea. Uh, a few hundred bucks. These are small loans, typically. Yeah. So then you would have to go back and make your payments at that same place. Usually weekly. Usually weekly. And if you're in default, then the interest rate gets jacked up and there are a whole bunch more fees tacked on. And the entire idea of this business model was that most people are not going to be able to pay their loan back. The idea here was not that people would actually repay these loans reliably. The idea was to get people tied in to a loan that they've defaulted on with very high default interest and very high fees and make it so that they just owe money forever. They borrowed money from you once and now they owe you money forever because of how high the interest rate and fees are. Yeah, but what would end up happening is when people would inevitably default, there was no recourse. You could sue people for unpaid balance on the payday loan, but legislature in their infinite wisdom decided, wait, let's say that you can't do payday loans unless it's secured by collateral. And so we got title loans. So, And this was supposed to fix the, the predatory payday loan problem. The whole idea was that people without assets shouldn't be subjected to these abusive loan terms. So instead of allowing these loans uh, with no collateral, we're going to say that if you're going to make loans to consumers uh, of this type, it has to be secured on a titled asset. So it has to be uh, a loan on a car or a loan on a house or or an RV, or whatever it is, some kind of titled asset has to secure it. So what do we end up with? 390% <laughs> loans on a car. <laughs> the exact same loan terms. It's the same loan. It's just that now you have to own a car in order to get the loan. So now they can repo your car. Maybe. But they do. They don't even care if you've actually got equity in the car or not, no. or if the car is actually worth anything. Nope. The, the whole deal with the car, the reason it's a title loan, is just to comply with these regulations. It's not actually no. really an important part of the deal. You can have negative equity in your car, be totally underwater on it, and have a, a giant primary loan for more than the car's worth. They'll still give you a title loan because it doesn't really have anything to do with the car. Except that, as you mentioned, sometimes they can repo it. If they're in first position on the car, in other words, you don't have another loan on it, then they may repo your car. It's weird. Even if they're in second lien position, they'll still repo your car. Really? They'll do it to burn you. 
they're pretty aggressive about it. It's pretty shocking how that's sort of played out. I've seen title loans where people have had a car, a really high car payment, and three title loans on the same car. And it's like, what are you doing? Go ahead and let that car be repossessed. You literally can't afford $1,500 every two weeks. It just doesn't ma- make sense mathematically. Yeah. But that's the kind of trouble people get into um, in high-stress situations where you feel broke and desperate and the only option is a title loan. Well, a title loan is never a good option. It is never the only option. You should really do everything you can to avoid taking out a title loan. Uh, right now, there is rent moratoriums. There are student loan breaks. There are um, landlords out there that are willing to work with you on monthly payments, even if you're a business owner uh, and you have commercial lease issues. You know, there are a lot of different ways that you can cut back on your expenses rather than take out a title loan right now. Those things are a nightmare to deal with. They do not negotiate. They will sue you, and they get default interest at eighteen percent, and they just sit on that sucker for a decade. So do don't do it. Please stop the racket. <laughs> Just stop doing it. <laughs> I think there's a, a strong case to be made that your local backroom loan shark might not really be any worse to deal with than your average title loan company. I don't know. Like your physical danger, not enter the equation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least you've got a human to deal with. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there are humans there, but yeah. still, yeah. I mean, I do a lot of negotiations with title loan companies. Um, as I deal with them, it's like part of our screening process. Like, do you have title loans? Like, here's the deal. We will help you, but you cannot take out another title loan. Uh, you just are not solving the problem at all. You're adding fuel to the flame. So what's the practical solution, though, for somebody who is absolutely hard up for cash and needs it? You just you need the money and you've got a job, but you don't have the cash right now. What alternative do people actually have to title loans? Well, you know, that's kind of requires a lot more planning. You know, the key to success is not getting into that situation. I know that's like extremely difficult right now. (laughs) Don't have that problem in the first place. That's a tough one. I know it's a tough one. But, you know, having credit cards, having good credit is a really good way to kind of avoid this option, this title loan option. Because if you have at least a decent credit score, 580 plus, you can get access to financing for what you need. So, you know, when your car, uh, you need new tires, uh, discount tire. Every tire company has some kind of finance option, usually 0% interest for people with good credit. Even if you have a 580, you can qualify for most of those things. You have an emergency dental procedure, you don't need to take out a title loan. See if you can qualify for care credit. There are lots of different ways to finance things. Yes, you're going to get hit with like 20% interest, but you're not looking at uh, 100 or 300 or 400 or whatever percent interest rate they're looking at. You're looking at a debt that maybe you can pay back in a, in a short period of time. So kind of dealing with looking at your different options for financing for whatever the problem is. Now, if you need cash, oof, that's a tough one. Why do you need cash? What It depends on your unique situation. Uh, it's really hard to give general advice on what to do in a pinch because there's so many different ways to handle it. Although I would have to agree, the the best solution for that kind of a pinch is to not get into it in the first place, which requires a longer term adjustment to mm-hmm. your financial approach and uh, saving an emergency fund and not touching it. Good luck with that. Um, it's it's tough. There's it no tough. easy solution, but I think 
what we're hearing from each other here is that there's no easy solution to dealing mm-hmm. with a title loan disaster anyways. No. Uh, if you've gotten yourself into a title loan situation, there may not be a real easy out. There are no easy outs. It's a tough problem. But I can tell you, continuing to get title loans to pay title loans is robbing Peter to pay Paul and it doesn't work. Yep. It's all got to come to a head sometime. So you need to plan for the inevitable, which is probably, in many cases, bankruptcy. Is it so? So I was going to ask: Is it feasible to for people to try to get current on their title loans and keep their credit in a situation where they can pay off those title loans using more conventional financing at a lower interest rate? Interestingly enough, title loans do not report to your credit report unless you're in default. So if you can avoid default and you can build your credit enough that you can use a credit card to pay off your title loan, it's better to do that. Then it's better to do that and then pay off your credit card. Yeah, because but usually you don't have the income the, necessary to pay off the title loan yeah. via credit card. Yeah. Well, that is a tough one. And that's why we're talking about it on the rackets. Yeah. Because it's a good way to get yourself in way over your head financially and create a problem that's difficult even for attorneys to solve. And I it's, think it's, it's important to note, the reason these problems are hard to solve is because the companies on the other side here, the ones doing the rackets... They're full of smart people and mm-hmm. they've got their own attorneys and they've got their own lobbyists and they have created systems for themselves that are intended to trap you. It's the whole point. It is the business model and they're not bad at their jobs. So uh, you got to watch out. And that's what makes it a racket is the fact that they're out to get you and it's a fundamentally predatory business model. It's insane. Yeah. And it's true for any high interest uh, loan. I see it in businesses yes. too. You know, Absolutely. like you need short-term financing as a business, you can end up with a daily interest accrual. Yes, uh, a lot of companies will take payments from businesses daily. You know, to pay back a loan, and it gets to be financially overwhelming, and you end up in kind of the same cycle as an individual in a title loan. The bottom line is, anytime somebody is desperate for immediate cash. Uh, they're at high risk of being preyed upon for a predatory loan, whether that's for a business or as an individual. Because if you're desperate for cash, you have a tremendous need and you have very little availability because nobody wants to loan money on good terms to somebody who is desperate for money because you got a real high risk of never getting it back. Uh, And as a result, the lenders who tend to work in those markets, whether we're talking about title loan companies or whether we're talking about an individual hard money lender who loans to a distressed small business, Mm -hmm. either way, it's going to be kind of an abusive relationship that you're getting yourself into. And you got to know that going in. Nobody's there to give you a hand up or a handout in that situation. They're there to put their foot on you and and extract as much juice out of you as they can before you shrivel up. Yeah, Uh, It's not a good arrangement to put yourself into. So hence the rackets. Let's see. Next. Moving on to predatory relationships. Oh, <laughs> it's time to talk about network marketing. Multi-level marketing. MLMs. So let's, uh, let's, let's do a disclaimer. A yeah, we'll preface this a little bit. So Rochelle and I both know a whole bunch of people who do MLMs. Yep. Uh, usually the people we know who are our friends who do MLMs are pretty darn good at it. It's freaking awesome. They've been doing it for a long time. They make money at it. They've got big teams under them. A lot of them have done more than one MLM. Maybe they're doing several at one time. Yeah. These are business owners. Business owners in the MLM (laughs) They are entrepreneurs and they are doing it right. They're doing it right. And what that means is they're treating it like a real job and a real business and they understand the big picture the overall 
scene uh, of the business world and how their MLM fits into it. Yep. And they know what their real product is. And here's what we'll tell you right off the bat. In an MLM, the product is not the product. Nope. The product is the business. Yep. The business opportunity. Anybody who made any real money in an MLM didn't sell much product. They sold a bunch of business. Yep. That's the business. (laughs) It's the opportunity to make money. That is what you're selling in an MLM. So why it's on the rackets is because sometimes it can be really predatory on people, especially right now. Some people have been laid off. Some people are desperate for a source of income. And now may not be the time to join a network marketing uh, club. There's tons of those for CBDs, Mm -hmm. for essential oils, for soaps, for... Uh, you know, gluten-free products for... You name it. If there's a straightforward, <sighs> hard hard physical product that can be sold and is easy to, to transport, it's got basic logistics, there's going to be an MLM based on yep. that. There's <laughs> tons of skincare. There's, you know, there are a lot. And there are tons that I have had. I like their products. And then, yeah. you know, I just got too many of them, so I canceled. I'm currently, I think a legal shield representative. I have been for years. I have never sold actually legal shield to anybody, you know, but someone sold me on doing it. That's how it works. So (laughs) I didn't pay out for them. But uh, usually like when you're looking at an MLM, you're seeing a product, you're falling in love with the product. And the key is to not be sold. I think you put this pretty eloquently earlier when we were talking about it. (laughs) Do not let yourself get sold on the MLM that you want to sell. The people who are doing well in any MLM, they see the bigger picture and I'll say it, they didn't buy the bullshit. They may be selling some of the bullshit, but they didn't buy the bullshit. Mm -hmm. Make the Kool-Aid. Yes. Make the Kool-Aid. Don't drink it yourself. Yeah. Um, You got to be a real advocate for the Kool-Aid and boy, you got to know everything about that Kool-Aid and be great at selling it, but you're not a buyer. Uh, if you're going to do well in these things. And this is uh, this is a critical thing for people to understand. I've, I've talked to a lot of people, friends and clients who've gotten involved in MLMs because they liked the product, because they thought the product itself was going to be successful in the long run. Man, it doesn't take much research online at all Mm-mm. to learn very quickly that almost every MLM goes through a predictable life cycle. Yep. The, the time frame of that life cycle varies from as short as several months to as long as a decade or so. Or decades. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think there's some, there's there are some exceptions. Mary to Kay. This. Mary Kay is, is an, an obvious exception. exception. Yes. Uh, Amway has continued to be yep. an, exception, an exception. There are a few specialized product MLMs uh, for technical products and for automotive products that have been ongoing for decades with very solid sales on a perpetual basis. And Mary Kay certainly is one of those. Yep. You can make a lot of money in those organizations. But, uh, but <laughs> you have to treat it like a business. And you have to treat yourself like a manager. Yes. What you're doing, if you're going to succeed as a Mary Kay person, is you're building a large team. We're talking dozens and dozens of people working If not hundreds. You, if not hundreds. That's the goal. Absolutely. Working underneath you, under your management and control with your guidance to help them develop the sales skills to get that product out and to build further layers of, I'll say it, the pyramid yeah. underneath you. Yep. It is a pyramid. Yep, it's it a pyramid is, scheme it all is, day, no matter how you look at it. It's not a Ponzi scheme, but it is a pyramid. And you definitely need to be further up the pyramid than most people in order to, to reap the benefits of it. So the key to that is you've got to build that pyramid underneath yourself and you've got to lift everybody above you up 
And you can only do that in an MLM that is rising. If your MLM is already saturated or in decline, um, man, you're just going to stay at the bottom of that pyramid and you're just feeding money to people over you. So, so you got to look at the whole big picture of let's this. Let's give some MLM. warning signs. Yeah. So the number one warning sign that you may have been entered into a saturated uh, MLM or network marketing opportunity is you go to a networking event and there are multiple reps from your company already there. Or even if there's a rep from this company in half of the networking groups that you've gone to lately. Yeah. If you're seeing a bunch of people doing it, you're too late. Yeah. You're way too late. You guys are just cross-pollinating the same market. And if I think the second biggest warning sign is if you are only buying the product and you're only selling it to your immediate family and closest friends, you are not doing sales. That does not count. That is a very expensive hobby. And it is time to take a look at the math and see if you can cut back on your business. Because if you are spending more money than you are making, now is not the time to continue to pursue that. I have engaged in a number of business pursuits that ended up being very expensive hobbies. And I found out partway <laughs> into them yes. that they were in fact hobbies and not viable business opportunities. And in some cases, I've continued doing them because, because it's a fun, fun hobby. And that's fine. But you got to make a call is. at some point and say, look, this, this isn't a money-making opportunity here. I'm just doing it because I like it. Yes. That's fine if you want to do that. But you got to know what you're doing. Yeah. That could be said for a lot of real estate agents in Arizona. Yes. Ooh. but regarding MLMs other signs things to look at know who you're working with if your upline isn't good uh, and if your upline isn't pretty close to the top of the pyramid and if you're unfamiliar with the term upline yeah you got some reading to do you want to be really pretty near the top if there are very many layers above you if it's a big national organization that's already really successful uh, if one of their big selling points is how successful they already are and, and how much they've already expanded, you should be taking that as a red flag, yep. not as a benefit. Because if you look at the history of MLMs over the last decade or so, the majority of them that have really exploded into a major national trend and made huge amounts of money have since disappeared. Yep. The, the pyramid eventually collapses and everyone who was going to reap their benefits has done so. So if you want to reap the benefits and, and be on the gravy train, you got to hop onto the front of the gravy train. That's where the gravy is. Yes. The back of the gravy train's got no gravy. It's the caboose. It is no the No one wants to be there. No. So pick something that's rising and you're going to think, well, how do I know it's going to rise? How do I know this MLM isn't just going to collapse in a month and I'm never going to make anything out of it? You don't. That's the hard part. About, about any business. Any business. <laughs> you have to predict the future. That's what business is, is successfully predicting the future, knowing what you can do now that's going to make you money later. Uh, which caboose to hop onto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So do your research, look at all of your options. And I would strongly encourage you if you're thinking about getting into MLM to seriously reflect on what you're trying to get out of this and what your motivations are. Because if you really think that you are a good salesperson, you've got some real people skills uh, and that's your big asset, then you You should seriously look at it. At, in many things. Absolutely. And well, MLMs might be great. Yes. MLMs can be great because they're pure sales. The whole concept of an MLM is that you take a simple product, typically, and then you develop a framework that allows people to easily sell that product. Yep. So it is a sales and order fulfillment framework that the MLM provides, and then it gives you a supply chain that mm-hmm. you're able to work with as a salesperson. And it lets you build an entire team under you 
and reap the profits of your sales team's hard work. Yep. So, man, if that sounds good to you, do it. Do it. You can become a multimillionaire doing this stuff. Lots of people get rich. And but what do they have in common? Great, great sales, sales skills. They're salespeople. Great sales. <laughs> That's what if makes you're good, good at sales, an MLM. <laughs> wait, that is an asset. Now, if you heard us say sales, 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 and you're like, oh, I hate sales. Oh. I don't do sales. Stay away. This well, is not, for, not you. for you. The entire job is sales. That's don't feel comfortable job. talking to people. Not for you. Not for you. I uh, don't have a Facebook. Not for you. I uh, hate social media. Probably not for you. Uncomfortable <laughs> spinning stuff to people to convince them to give you money. If you if that makes you feel weird, if you don't like the idea of roping people into something and getting them Why all wrapped like up that? in it. <laughs> you don't have to be sleeping. That's all to you. This might not be a brand that you believe in. Promoting a brand you believe in. If you don't feel comfortable doing that. If you don't feel comfortable building a team to to uh, showcase your product yeah. to the world. Yep. Feel weird about managing people. Mm, None of this is you. probably for you. Yeah. That's really the goal here. Yeah. If you've sold cars, if you've done commission sales, if you've been good at that stuff and you want to get back into a sales opportunity, look for a good rising MLM that's well-managed, where people are straightforward, where the top management deals in plain terms with the people under them, and you've got some transparency on what they're really offering. And what's going on with the organization? Yeah, you can make that work. Yep. So we're sending some mixed messages here about MLMs because it's a mixed bag. And it depends on the person who's involved. So don't let this be a racket for you. That's right. You know, do your research and ask yourself some pretty tough questions about what you actually want and what your motivations are. Because if sales isn't it, this is not for you. Just do some... Do some basic math. It's just basic arithmetic to see based on the commission structure they've got and how their upline and downline works. Look at the reality of what you have to do in order to make the kind of money that you think you want to make. If you need to make $100,000 a year out of that MLM, figure out what that really looks like. How many leads do you need? What's your conversion rate going to be? Like You have to do some backwards math on that. How many average people do you need working under you in how many layers... Of, of downline in order to achieve the result that you want. And the numbers may terrify you and, and you may say, there's just no way, this is insane. That's never going to happen. Or you may look at that and say, that's doable. that's doable. I've managed teams that big. I can get that many people together. It's no problem. Yep, do and, some math. Yeah, do some math. And it's going to vary wildly between different MLMs because some are much more favorable yep. than others. It's a huge variety out there. But if you look at MLMs as a sales framework that will allow you to just freely showcase your sales skills and your sales team building, that's where your success is. So I guess this segment ends up being more of a, a how to make money in MLMs and MLM promotional thing rather than uh, rackets. rackets. So what's the racket? Oh, when you just pay forever and you didn't realize, or worse, the starter packages, those yeah. are probably the biggest racket. The starter packages that are like five or six thousand dollars, and uh, they have no sales training, and they yeah. just expect you to sell it. For those people, it feels like a racket because sometimes you financed it using a credit card. So if you are one of those yeah. people that are wondering, is now the right time to start my MLL business? And you heard all of that, and you're still saying yes, then you should probably consider it and maybe yeah. move forward. Uh, if we scared you to death, then 
good. <laughs> it's scary. It is scary. It's business. Business is scary. It's got a lot of upsides compared to hardcore brick and mortar yes, entrepreneurship. Yes, way less overhead. Yeah, way less overhead and a lot less forward financial yes. risk. Typically, if you're going to start a business completely on it's your way own, more expensive than five or six thousand. It's way more expensive upfront, and you will be obligating yourself to permanent financial commitments or at least oh, long-term yeah. commercial leases, printers, uh, long-term finance agreements on expensive merchant equipment. Merchant processors. Exactly. It just goes on. Yeah, it all kinds ends. of stuff. Yeah. And an MLM handles that for you and the MLM organization takes those long-term yep. financial risks so you're able to pull the plug at any time. Insert. Yes. You plug yourself in and you can unplug yourself and your losses will be limited to your involvement up mm-hmm. to that point. And that's good. You know, a lot of people end up in a saturated MLM and they've got $15,000, $20,000 worth of MLM product filling their basement that they can't get rid of and they view that as a huge loss. Well, let me tell you, compared to failed brick and mortar entrepreneurship, oh. you're not losing much of anything. Yeah. Uh, it feels like a lot, but that's all relative. It's relative. You've still got two and a half tons of vitamins in your basement. You might yeah. be able to sell them for something eventually. It's called <laughs> uh, salvage. Yeah. Inventory that's, always that's has a value. Some kind of salvage value, typically. Yep. Ask the um, trustee. And so, you know, the idea of having two and a half tons of vitamins stuck in your basement that you can't unload gets to, I think, the number one MLM racket. And that is oversaturated MLMs that are in their death throes. It's not a racket in the sense that I don't think there's anything intentionally no. misleading going on. We but hope. Yeah. But it is the ineffectual thrashing of an organization in its final stages. What tends to happen is MLMs grow to a point where they are no longer able to grow more because there are so many reps in so many markets that anybody who would possibly want to buy the product or participate already has done so. You've seen this over the last decade. I'm not going to name a bunch of names, but come on, there have just been so many. You can think of at least two. Yeah, all the bumper stickers you see that are now flaking off the back of people's cars. Five years ago, that was their business and everybody else's. You can't join an MLM at that point and ever expect to make money. If you and everyone else are being bombarded with this MLM's advertising, if it's just everywhere, there's no opportunity for you. It's not an opportunity at that point. The opportunity is in an MLM that you think will reach that point someday. Because that point when their advertising is saturating everything and everyone who can possibly participate is already in, you want to have been in long before that. Oh, yeah. If because you're on that that's where you cash out. Mm-mm. Doesn't work. Yep. All right. Let's move on to our last racket. The Arizona door-to-door scams that are happening yeah. right now. Now, this one's a real racket. Yes. Criminal racket. Criminal. So if you... Uh, get a knock on your door these days and someone is offering to clean your house for free or worse, they say they're from the CDC and they need to inspect your home, go ahead and close that door and call the attorney general's office and ask to speak with the COVID-19 fraud task force. These are not real things. The CDC is never going to come out and inspect your house. The world is insane right now, but it's just not that crazy. I'm from the government and I'm here to inspect your furnace filter. It's never happened before and it's not going to happen next week. It's not happening. Not happening. It's a fraud that's going on, especially targeting older people, people offering to inspect your cars, offering to inspect your homes, and then robbing you later or robbing you right then. Uh, In any case, there's just been a a rapid increase in these types of door-to-door scams. The best thing you can do is report it because right now, 
law enforcement is a little overwhelmed with other things. And if you want someone to investigate this and for the criminal activity to stop, your best case is to call the attorney general's office, ask to speak with the COVID-19 fraud task force and report the suspicious activity. Now, any good advice for dealing with door-to-door scams um, or phone calls or text messages or whatever is to call the company they say they're from. So if you feel like the guy from the CDC seems a little shady, call the CDC. Ask if they're going to inspect your house. Oh, wait, you can't do that? Yeah, that's right. So that's not a real thing. (laughs) Google it. Yes, Google it. That's the key. (laughs) People are getting increasingly tricky these days. Yes, spoofing things. These things get more sophisticated. (sighs) And as a result, you can't trust what the person at your door tells you. Uh, when it comes to contact information. So if they've got you know a vest or a shirt or even an ID tag that belongs to a company and you want to call to verify their employment, don't take the phone number that's on their materials and mm-hmm. call that one. That could be their friend in the van down the street. Uh, anybody can do that these days. So you got to look up their contact information publicly and then call in to a main switchboard number that you know is good people are, are really are getting increasingly sophisticated mm-hmm. with this stuff. So take things with a grain of salt. If it's really unexpected and it doesn't make much sense, don't just assume that yeah. people know what they're doing. Uh, if there isn't a good explanation for why somebody needs to get into your house right now, don't do it. Uh, they're not really there to do you much of a favor. No. Yeah. Not, very few things are free. And yeah. they're really targeting older people offering you know, free cleaning services, free grocery shopping, just give me your cash and I'll go for you. There's so many scams out there. Like just, if it doesn't sound right, it's probably not right. With that said, there are also a whole bunch of very helpful programs right now yes, and opportunities to get assistance that would never have been available before. So certainly there are offers now that seem too good to be true. I mean, we're all going to be getting checks from the federal government. I guess we're not getting checks from the federal government. Allegedly, starting the 13th, checks from the federal (laughs) government uh, should start to be deposited, which brings us to the next scam, which is most likely a call from someone asking for your account and routing number so they can give you your stimulus check. Uh, Don't fall for that. Like, If you didn't institute the connection or the call to the IRS or fill out their online form for it or... They probably already have it if you have filed for taxes in the past. You shouldn't have any third party contacting you uh, for stimulus checks. Yep. There are a lot of people in this country that are going to be getting the checks, and it is simply not feasible to call them to request checking and routing information. If you see an email uh, requesting this info, don't click the link. Don't go to the website, just go directly to the irs.gov website and see what the instructions are for giving the federal government your bank account and routing number, which never makes anyone comfortable. Yeah, it's really, in a lot of ways, unfortunate that we have to deal with the logistics of these real programs right now because the government is doing everything they can to try to get this handled, but they've never had to do this either. Nope, not like this. The systems are not in place. Mm -mm. So it's going to take... Uh, quite a bit of work for them to figure out how to distribute the money to everybody, how to work with all the banks. Uh, Rochelle and I have been dealing with this on the small business side with the the Paycheck Paycheck Protection Protection Program Program loan. And it's uh, not gone smoothly for anybody and and certainly Mm -hmm. has been a a disaster for Wells Fargo clients. Uh, Fortunately, we bank with Chase and it seems to be going smoothly enough once we got past the initial parts. We'll see. On the whole, 
uh, you got to cut everybody some slack right Mm -hmm. now, but also be highly suspicious because chances are if somebody is personally contacting you about one of these mass programs, it's not legitimate. Err on the side of assuming that it is not legitimate because the personnel and resources simply do not exist, either with the government or at large banking institutions, to individually contact everyone who is participating in these types of programs. Even with the business loans, they do not have the personnel Mm -mm. to talk to people on the phone about these things. Mm -mm. So be highly suspicious of any sort of an in-person contact. Uh, Be highly suspicious of any emails, any electronic communications. Text messages, phone calls. Text messages. Because first of all, there are tons of fraudsters preying on everybody. Second of all, the government doesn't have time to fix these problems for you. Yep. If you end up being a victim of a scam right now, it's going to be really difficult to deal with that. There's no recourse. There's no recourse. The resources aren't there. And everybody's got, frankly, more important things to deal with, true life and death scenarios, as well as their own uh, financial matters to handle. So the police are not going to be investigating your fraud issue uh, the prosecutors are not going to be pursuing those kinds of of complicated to investigate white collar crimes. Uh, it's just not happening. We're on our own right now, and caveat emptor certainly applies. Protect yourself and be extra suspicious. Yep, always verify. Always verify independently. Yes, just assume that all the information that people are giving you is concocted specifically to get you to give up your money. Yeah. Yep. Just. Just be very, very cautious of people asking. Do we sound overly paranoid when we do this? Probably. I don't care. (laughs) We're right. We're right. (laughs) Our paranoia is born from a lot of deep knowledge. And unfortunately, you know, consumer rights. I deal with the worst of the worst. I deal with mixed file, identity theft, lots of stuff happening in cryptocurrency. Mm. We'll save that for the rackets three. Um, There's so many Mm. issues out there and there's so many scams that are constantly circling the valley that it's not really paranoia. It's actually like, look, we can tell this is a great opportunity for someone to rip you off. So let's just be preemptive and tell you about it. You can heed our advice or not. We don't care. Um, you know, it's a podcast. Yep. We're just glad you're listening. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we can sum up the crypto racket. I can. <laughs> cryptocurrency is a zero-sum game as long as you're converting it from cryptocurrency to real currency or real assets. So the only way anybody makes money in crypto is by taking it from somebody else, which is totally fine. You can get rich in cryptocurrency but only if you take that money from somebody else, which means if you're going to play in it, you got to understand you that lose. the only way you win is to make somebody else lose, and they're all trying to make you lose too. So don't get any kind of ideas in your head that cryptocurrency is anything like the equities market or real estate or, or, rush. or really most other types of markets. Uh, it's no. a unique situation that has developed and it's a fun playground if you want to jump into it. But man, you got to be careful because uh, you have to be a shark and you're fighting sharks. Yes. No dolphins allowed. No dolphins allowed. <laughs> all right. What I else think do that'll have? do it. That covered it for that our, covers our, it all. our stuff for today. This yes. was a whirlwind on rackets in the era of coronavirus. Yes. Um, yeah. What else? You know, scams on protective equipment, scams on coronavirus cures, There's all kinds of stuff out there. There are people peddling door-to-door coronavirus cures. I forgot about that one. Yeah. Um, That's an easy one to address. There is no cure for coronavirus. There's no vaccine. There is no treatment. Rubbing anything all over your body is not going to solve the problem. Buying an essential oil is not going to solve the problem. 
if you are getting these or you see them and you're wondering if it's suspicious, just go ahead and call the Attorney General COVID-19 Fraud Task Force and let them investigate it. If the company is legitimate, they will actually have like a website and good reviews and things you can see. And importantly, any company that is making a coronavirus-specific health claim that's not about a sanitizer type product. So if a company is selling something and they say this kills coronavirus on surfaces or it kills coronavirus on your hands, that may well be legitimate. There are products that are that are allowed to make those claims. Lysol, for example. Oh, Lysol yeah. has been tested, number of their products, they are allowed to state that it kills 99.9% of germs, including coronaviruses. They say not 100% does. for yeah. a lot of reasons. But but if somebody's telling you that something will treat coronavirus or that it will help you avoid catching it uh, as a supplement or anything like that, run away. Run away because that is an illegal claim. Yep. There are no approved treatments and there is nothing that has been vetted and approved nope. to make the marketing claim that it prevents coronavirus or that it improves the symptoms. So any company that is making those claims is violating the law. And they know they're violating the law because it's pretty well understood that those types of health claims have to be vetted and approved. Yes. And companies that are pushing it right now know that they are peddling uh, a load of crap. Uh, yeah, they just can't be doing that. Stop so cool. don't fall into it. Report that stuff. You see stuff like that on Facebook ads. Report the ads. Yep. Uh, report it, report it, report it because that is the modern snake oil. There is nothing that is approved to make those types of claims these days, and it will be quite some time before yep. anything is. So thank you for joining us on Legitimate The Rackets Part 2, and we will see you guys next week on our next episode where we will discuss social media marketing 2020. Super excited about that. Excellent. If you want to contact us, you can do so by email at legitimate at expermlaw.com. And... We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.